says it's on. All right, let's uh, turn to Genesis 45, which is a passage we began last week. And uh, we were, uh, the goal was to make it through the first 15 verses, and we didn't get anywhere near that. <laughs> which I kind of expected. That did not come as a terrible surprise to me. Uh, so, uh, so we're kind of continuing last week's lesson in, in the first 15 verses of chapter 45. And there are some things that we talked about last week that I'd like to talk a little bit more about today. And, uh, uh, and uh, then go on and talk about uh, some additional things uh, that we didn't get to last week. So, uh, Robert, it's good to see you here today. <laughs> it's been uh, it's been a while. So, great. Uh, so let's go back and think through. Look down through those verses, those fifteen verses. We'll read them here in a few minutes uh, again. But uh, what do you remember that we talked about last week? It's the climax of the climax, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, this this whole section, starting in about chapter 43 and and up through about 46 or so, is kind of the the climax of the whole story of Joseph. And this particular passage, uh, chapter 45, and particularly these verses that we're looking at last week and this week, are really kind of the climax of the climax. This is kind of the pinnacle of the story of Joseph. And we'll talk more about why that's true today. But uh, what else? Okay. Uh, Obviously, uh, Joseph was uh, pretty loud in his... (laughs) Expression of his emotion. So he wanted to keep it private, but he <laughs> he wasn't real successful at all of that. So, what else? He came to the front and caught him off guard. He said, "Please come closer to me," because he'd already sent everybody out. And all of a sudden, there's no interpreter, and he's talking to him. Yeah, yeah, and we'll talk some more about that. We'll talk some more about that today because we really didn't get uh, to explore that last week. So we'll talk some more about him calling his brothers closer to him. What else? Something that's interesting is he talks about how he identifies himself as Joseph, and because his father's still alive, even after Judah has gone through this great, this, this great oratory of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what do you, uh, do you remember? What I suggested was the reason why he asked that question, given the fact that he already knows the answer. <laughs> I, as I look at it, as I say, he already knows the answer. And as he goes on uh, in his talk or in his speech, whatever you want to call it here, to his brothers, he sets out to them what he wants them to do in regard to his father. So he obviously believes his father is still alive. So, <clears throat> so I just keep asking myself, why would, he, why would he ask the question? And I think it's really so, not so much a question. I think it's an emotional outburst. <laughs> it's it's kind of like earlier he had asked, you know, how is your aged father? But he had, had to, he had to ask that in that kind of cultural, kind of normal way that we, when we greet somebody on the street or in Walmart or in the hallway of the church, we say, how are you doing? You know, and he had, because of the, because of the ruse that he was uh, carrying on or the, the, the plan that he was carrying out, he couldn't reveal his identity. So, he couldn't really ask the question with the intensity and the feeling that he wanted to ask it with. And so now he's really free just to let it all hang out and, and, and ask about his father with the intensity and the love and the passion uh, that, he, that he wanted to. Yeah. He wanted to save my father. 
your father. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. My translation does say, "Is my father still alive?" Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like I'm your brother. I want to hear about my father. Yeah, yeah, and and repeatedly. Reinforcement. Yes, and repeatedly throughout the from there on, he calls him my father, my father, and he says it over and over again. That's that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Now, I'm Joseph. Yeah. 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 It's, it really is striking as you go through the narrative. And I don't know about how, how much in actual real life the name has not been spoken. But as you go through the narrative, they never say Joseph. They say my brother or my son or his son. or you know. But they never say Joseph. And Joseph is the first one to speak the name which shall not be named uh, and, uh, and to make this thing very personal and very real to everybody that's involved. Okay. So not only did he speak the name that shall not be named, but he said something else that they never really were willing to actually speak or say up to this point. What was that? Okay, he was sold into slavery. You know, they they'd use all these euphemisms and they and they talked about him being no more and talked about him being dead and you know they used all but nobody had ever just come out and said you sold him into slavery or we sold him into slavery. Okay, that's always been kind of under the table and we haven't and Joseph just brings it out okay he just brings it right to the surface so he names the name that shall not be named and he names the sin that shall not be named which is that they have sold him into slavery but when he names it when he actually mentions that they sold him into slavery is that an accusation why does he say that he's just providing it more confirmation. Okay, okay. He's not because we see that he's we see that he's already forgiving them. He's in the process of extending forgiveness to them. So it's not an accusation, it's an identification. It's a way for them to know, yes, this is really me. This because nobody else knows this. As we point out after we got our math right last week, <laughs> we we uh, uh, we we recognize the fact that there are really only 11 people who know this story. Okay. It's the ten brothers and Joseph. And so for Joseph to say, you sold me into slavery is a way of him identifying himself as I'm the guy. I know this story. Okay, you haven't said it. You haven't told me this. It's all been kind of swept under the rug, but I know it. And, and that's his way of proving who he really is, that he's the one who was sold into slavery. What else? There is no easy way to introduce such a shocking revelation. You know, if you ever try to tell somebody something that's really hard or it's yeah. going to be a shock, you just, you just have to blurt it out. Yeah. Almost. yeah. So I, I couldn't think of any other way but just to say it. I've often, I've often thought, uh, I've often thought, and I hope I don't touch on a nerve too sensitive here with some of you, but but I've often thought how painful it is when a, a, a military officer has to come to a home and tell the parents that their son or their daughter has been killed in, in conflict uh, somewhere. And I just, you know, I, and there's some people, that, you know, particularly in times of war, there are people in the military, that's just their job. And I think about that a lot of times. I think, what, what a, you know, it's certainly not a job I would ever want. You, you would have to be particularly gifted to be able to do that kind of job. Uh, but, yeah, there's some things that are just, there's just no easy way to say it. <laughs> and yet this is something that Joseph has wanted so desperately to say for so long. Yeah. I don't know if we touched on it, but when we talked about Joseph perhaps you know, being a type of Christ and that mm-hmm. he had you know, he couldn't constrain himself and that that's God's nature any time a person is repentant mm-hmm. and humble in his presence. God always shows mercy, but I know we talked about the part where his next response was come closer. And I think that's, that's again, the heart of God. We come in and think, mm-hmm. you know, we're a sinner and we have no business even being there. And he may yeah. say, get out of here. Yeah. But God's response is always come yeah. closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't, we didn't talk on that last week, and I would like to talk some more about that today. So, good.
Anything else you want to mention from last week? I was kind of surprised that they, they only had food for two years. But when I, you know, in verse 6 it says that the, the famine is only in two years, but the family had already been, apparently, maybe a year before, mm-hmm. or some period of time. Mm-hmm. But they just, because I had thought that the family there had, had pretty good means and they had lots of livestock and but yet they had to go get food pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah. So it must have been a very severe famine. Yeah. Well, that's quite clearly the scripture emphasizes not only that it was a famine, but that it was a severe famine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the things we talked about last week was the uh, we talked about the con- first we talked about the concept of a remnant that that Joseph uh, said to his brothers that. <clears throat> that God had sent him before them uh, in order to preserve for them a remnant in the, on the earth. And so we talk about this idea of the remnant, and this becomes a theme throughout Scripture then, is that God, God has a way throughout Scripture of preserving His people, even through great catastrophe. And of course, as I mentioned last week, the first great example of that would have been Noah uh, in the flood and how God preserved a remnant and God is always preserving a remnant and and uh, we see that on down through scripture and then we talk about of course kind of maybe the classic example of that is in Romans chapter 11 God preserving a remnant among the Jews uh, so that ultimately he can save uh, the whole nation and uh, so that idea of a remnant and that God is that God is able to and God is is all about preserving for himself uh, uh, those who are his and keeping them through great catastrophe. So he says, God has sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, he says, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And then one of the things we talked about, as you remember last week, is we talked about just the extravagance of God's deliverance. (laughs) That's one of the cool things about this story is is this was no kind of ordinary run of the mill deliverance? He he says God kept me alive, uh, or he, he wanted to keep you alive through a great deliverance, and then he says, for it was not uh, therefore it was not you that sent me here, but it was God, and that God in doing so he said has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of his house and 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 ruler over all the land of Egypt. And you just see this extravagance with God that he didn't just, you know, figure out some kind of minimal way to keep the people of Israel alive and the descendants of Jacob alive through this great famine. He didn't he didn't just come up with some minimalist way of doing it, but he he has this extravagant way of showing his salvation. And uh, and to me, that's a tremendous encouragement. Uh, because I really do believe when all is said and done uh, and, and we stand in His presence, we are going to be overwhelmed by the extravagance of the way that He delivers us and saves us. And, uh, and it's hard for us as we struggle along in this life with the circumstances that we're in from day to day sometimes to keep that in view and to keep that in, 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 our, in our mind. But... That is, in fact, the way God is. And so that's one of the things we talked about last week. Well, let's read these verses again uh, to, again, refresh our minds uh, of the story. And then we'll talk about uh, some more uh, that we want to talk about in the passage. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me and And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and He has made Him a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all the earth. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Well... One of the things we talked about some last week and I'd like to think a little bit more about today is, is this perspective that Joseph has. Because everything that happens in this story happens because of this perspective or this understanding that Joseph has. That everything that's happened here is are, are not just kind of coincidental events and they are not just the product of hateful, resentful, bitter brothers. Okay, But all the things that have unfolded in his life have unfolded because God had a purpose. And it wasn't just that God had a purpose in Joseph's life, but it was that God had a broader purpose. God had a purpose for, for his brothers. God had a purpose for his Parents, God had a purpose for the whole clan, but not only that, but God had a purpose for the whole land of Egypt and for many people, it says. So the, the thing that that empowers or activates, if you will, is the catalyst for this whole story is Joseph's ability to see things from God's perspective. And to understand that that the things that he can see with his physical eyes is not the whole story. That's not the whole story. But, but, the, but the real story, the true story, is much bigger and much greater and much more wonderful than that. And, and so that's the perspective that he comes with. And so he says, he says to his brothers, he, he actually says, so he says, now therefore it was not you who sent me down here. Now, of course, he's already said, you sold me into Egypt. And, you know, so he's acknowledged their personal their individual culpability in things. Uh, and of course, as we'll talk in a minute, he's forgiving them for that. But, but he's acknowledging their, he acknowledges their culpability in that. But, but then it's, it's like he says, it's really not significant. What you did to me really isn't what caused all this to happen. But it's God that did this. God brought this about. And, and as I think through the whole story, my mind goes all the way back to that first journey when Joseph set forth from uh, Beersheba or wherever they were at the time and he went to look for his brothers. And you remember his father sent him, he says, I want you to go find your brothers and see how they're doing. And so he sets off and he's wearing his fancy cloak and he sets off to find his brothers. And as he sets off to find his brothers, what does he encounter? Where are his brothers? Do you remember where his brothers were? Pardon? He found a stranger apparently who knew where his brothers were. Okay. Because his father said they're, they're, they're pasturing the flock in Shechem. So he goes to Shechem to find them and they're not there. They're actually up at Dothan. Now, Dothan's quite a ways from Shechem. There's no way Joseph would have ever found his brothers. Except he encounters this man. 
And it's interesting to me how many of the commentaries, when they talk about that, they put the word man in parentheses. It's as if, was it really a man? <laughs> you know, and I, have, I wonder that myself. Was it really a man? But I think about that encounter with that man at Shechem. And had he not encountered that man at Shechem, none of this would have happened. But he encounters this man at Shechem that says, oh, I overheard your brothers and they said they were going to Dotham. And if Joseph had not encountered that man at Shechem, none of this would have happened. None of the being thrown in a pit and drug out of a pit and sold into slavery and dragged down into Egypt and being a slave in Potiphar's house and then being thrown in prison and then being elevated uh, to the second uh, most powerful man in all of Egypt, perhaps in all of the world. Uh, none of that would have happened. And it's like, it's like here is Joseph and he's out there wandering around and God needs to get Joseph who's out there wandering around looking for his brothers and he needs to get him to Egypt because he's got something he needs for him to do in Egypt. And so he sends this man to him. I don't know the trade route. But if they'd have been check on the trade route may not have come by there they might have just killed him. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Just, just left him there. Yeah. 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 That's a good thought. So the thing that strikes me is about that whole that whole encounter with that man in Shechem is it's just so clearly God was sending him to Egypt. You know, and 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 I'm and I'm sure Joseph many times. You know how you know how sometimes when something bad happens in your life. You know, like when your football team loses, you know, by by a field goal at the last second, you know. What do you do? When you think back over that game, what do you do? You go back and you think about all the, you know, the pass that was dropped in the end zone or the, you know, or the interception just at the wrong moment. You, you think about all the things that if only that had been different, we would have won the game, you know. We just and, and, and more importantly than that, when we when we experience real tragedy in our life, the loss of a loved one or something by some terrible accident or something, oftentimes we go back and we think, Well, you know, if only I'd talked with him a little longer on the phone or you know you know only if this hadn't happened or that hadn't happened and we and, and we and we and we try to think if if we could just change this and the whole thing would be different. And I just wonder how many times in Joseph's life in the last 22 years has he gone back and thought, wow, if I hadn't encountered that guy at Shechem, how things would have been different. But I don't think he, certainly by this point in his life, he doesn't do that with regret. I think at this, certainly by this point in his life, he now, when he looks back on that, he realizes it was God that put that guy there. In fact, you know, I'm sorely tempted to believe it was an angel that God put there to send Joseph to Egypt. And, and that's Joseph's perspective. I don't know if that's his perspective about that guy at Shechem, but certainly that's his general perspective. He makes that quite clear. God sent me to Egypt because he had a purpose that had a lot more to do with than, than just with me. But it has to do with all of you and a whole lot of other people too, he says. And, and so this is, the, this is the overriding perspective that Joseph has that enables this whole story. Yeah. Um, I think about this a lot and I think others may some degree or another. Our lives seem to be mired in insignificance. You know, we have a small realm of influence. You know, I've got I've got four kids. I work around, you know, half a dozen people or whatever that I really get to talk to. It just seems like the the whole circle of influence is so small. And and to, and now you look at Joseph here. He's got this huge, tremendous. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't really overstate the significance of this event and yeah. what's happened in yeah. his perspective. Yeah. 
And, and so trying to think through, okay, here I am in my life, and I try to think of this kind of perspective that Joseph has and apply it to my life. And it's a real struggle to think, okay, well, I believe God is working, and I, by faith I believe I can have this conversation with somebody and it's going to have this impact or whatever. Well, what I'm doing really does matter, you know. Uh, I'm not just wasting time, you know, or yeah. whatever. I, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. that whole... Well, that's why that's that's why Paul says uh, in Corinthians when Paul says that that these things were written for our instruction that through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. I was thinking about that just yesterday. I was thinking, why is this story in the scripture? Is it just here? Is just so much information for us about the nation of Israel just because we need the data? Why does the Holy Spirit record this story? Why does He spend chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter in one of the most important books of the Bible telling us the story of Joseph? Because it has relevance to our life. And, and you're right, we struggle with that. I, for Christmas, uh, uh, for Christmas I, I received a gift from my son and daughter-in-law that was actually on my Amazon wish, wish list, which is a biography of Bonhoeffer. And it's because I, I wanted to, uh, I've always been curious about Bonhoeffer. I've read some stuff about him before and read some other books about him, but I've always got these questions about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And, uh, and so I, I just felt like I needed to get a grip on him. But the stuff I've read before about him has not been particularly inspiring or fun to read. It was just stuff I felt I had to read. And I still had these questions, so I asked for this book for Christmas thinking, well, here's another book I need to work through on Bonhoeffer. And so <clears throat> Benjamin and Amanda gave it to me for Christmas, and, uh, and I unwrapped it, and it was nearly 600 pages long. And I went, oh, this is going to be a lot of work. <laughs> uh, but it has been a thrill to read this book. It's like reading a novel. It's a superbly written biography of Bonhoeffer, but... <laughs> written by a guy by the name of Eric Metaxas, uh, came out a couple of years ago. <clears throat> but that's one of the things that strikes me is that, because here's Bonhoeffer, and, and here's this guy who, who's very influential. You know, he's just, he's born into influence. He's born into a family of influence, and he's born into this tremendous heritage, and, a, and, and, and he's dealing with all these earth-changing events that are happening in Germany leading up to and during the Second World War. And he's part of the conspiracies to assassinate Hitler. And, and you know, he's right. And I, and I read it, and it's very inspiring. Much of it's very inspiring. And, of course, it raises critical issues about ethics and things like that, too, which is why I wanted to read it. But, but I think about that. I think here's this, you know, here's just a little pee on me. I'm just a house painter and a Sunday school teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. And that's all I am, you know. And so we, we wrestle with those things. But that's why this passage is here. Because God wants us to see these things in our life as Joseph did in his. Yeah, Ron. But remember, Joseph, at one point, he had no spirit in prison. That's right. That's right. He was in prison. That's I'm right. sure he felt the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't even have family yeah. or friends yeah. or anybody. And at that point, he had no idea yeah. where he was headed. And it was only because his faithfulness when he was a little peon, that he, God could then trust him with the greater position he already. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he, Jesus, stepped out with his face backwards to his face to go to Jerusalem. Here, Jesus knew what he was going into, and that was kind of a turning point. He was heading into suffering. Right. He didn't necessarily know it, but it was one of those important encounters. Yeah. So I sometimes wonder if there's something there that's a parallel. Yeah. No, good, good. Well, the, the key to all that is faithfulness, isn't it? We, we don't know ultimately where God is taking us. And, and, and what's so striking about Joseph is that he gets where he gets and he has the effect that he has because he's been faithful in the little things. On a day-to-day basis, when everything was against him, when everything was going wrong, and he was nothing but a, just a peon slave 
in the house of Potiphar. But he continues to be faithful. Even in prison, he continues to be faithful. And ultimately, God then uh, can accomplish his purpose. Well, so, so he has this, this kind of uh, perspective of God and perspective of what God is doing. But I was asking myself about this passage this week. I was asking myself, what, because this, you know, for, for many of us, I think, here in the room, this is one of our favorite passages, right? I mean, we love this story. And particularly this part of this story we love. You know, when I'm reading through Genesis, this is the chapter I want to get to. <laughs> this is the story I want to read, you know. And, and I... And I was asking myself, what is it that makes this passage so powerful to us? Why do we love this story? Reconciliation. Okay, it's reconciliation. And what makes that reconciliation possible? Repentance. Repentance and repentance and forgiveness. What makes this passage, you know, and we've already dealt with the repentance. That was in the previous chapter. That was Judah's speech, right? But what makes this particular passage so powerful is the forgiveness. And if I had to ask myself, what is the theme of this first half of Genesis chapter 45? I would have to say the theme of this passage is forgiveness. It's a man who has been horrifically terribly wronged who completely freely forgives those who wronged him and then the reconciliation becomes possible I think we also like it because it has revenge in it <laughs> <laughs> he does well he does in kind of a cool sort of way yeah yeah it all gets settled out right but what strikes me here in this passage is the forgiveness of Joseph. Because the forgiveness of Joseph here is so unlike so much of what passes for forgiveness. Now, don't take me wrong, and I'll qualify this in just a minute, so don't take me wrong when I first say this, but there is a sense here in which the forgiveness just seems so easy. In fact, it's irresistible. Do you notice that? The very first verse. Joseph could not control himself before those who stood beside him. And he cried out, leave the room. It's like this... this upswelling of forgiveness in him was like this, this tsunami that was coming out of him and he could not control it. And it just and he's got to get everybody out of the way so he can deal with the people who he needs to deal with. And as soon as he gets the Egyptians out of the room, it just comes flooding out with such power and such force that he's, he's just weeping. And it's not a weeping of sorrow. It's a weeping of relief and a weeping of pleasure and a weeping that there's now reconciliation and there's weeping now that he has seen repentance in his brothers and he can extend to them the forgiveness and he can reveal who he is and it just comes out like a flood tide. And I just think about how many, how many times have maybe in our own lives or maybe we've seen it, witnessed it close at hand with others, where when it comes time when somebody needs to forgive somebody else, they have to be really pushed to do it. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever felt that yourself? It came time to forgive and somebody had to come alongside of you and say, Come on now, you gotta forgive. You need to forgive. And what strikes me here is there's nobody standing over Joseph's shoulder going, okay, Joseph, now you've got to forgive your brothers. It's so easy. Now, again, I, I, you know, 
Bear with me here. It's so easy. It just comes out. And he doesn't have to have somebody behind him pushing him, saying, now, now Judah, made, you know, Judah's apologized, so, you know, Judah's changed, so you need, to, you need to forgive him, Joseph. There's none of that. And so I ask myself, why is forgiveness so hard? When for Joseph it seemed so easy. Now, let me qualify that. I do believe it was easy for Joseph to forgive. But I don't believe it was cheap. I don't believe it was inexpensive. I believe it was a very costly forgiveness for Joseph. That's clear. But, but when the time came to forgive his brothers... There's no reluctance. There's no holding back. There's no hesitancy. In fact, it's like he can't resist it. Now, is that not for us a picture of the forgiveness of God? Or is it? Maybe because for us so oftentimes forgiveness is so hard to do that we think that it's also hard for God to do for us. But there's nothing God wants to do more than to forgive us. And when we are placed in a position to receive that forgiveness, it comes like a flood. It just comes like a flood. And so I, I struggle with the question, why is it so hard for us to forgive? And I think there are two reasons at least two reasons that I can think of. And one of them is because we don't understand forgiveness and the terms of forgiveness. And this leads us to think that we owe forgiveness where it's not owed. Now, Joseph did not forgive his brothers the day before or the year before or any time in the previous 20 plus years. Forgiveness comes now, after Judah's speech. That's when forgiveness comes. That's when Judah pronounces to his brothers, you're free and clear. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not love. Those are two different things. And Judah has always loved his brothers. Or excuse me, Joseph has always loved his brothers. He's always loved his family. But he could not forgive them until it was clear they'd repented. And oftentimes, one of the reasons we find it so hard to forgive is because we're being told to forgive somebody who's not repented. And I think quite clearly, the Scriptures are quite clear. I've said this many times before. I think the Scriptures are quite clear. God does not forgive anybody who does not repent. I don't know why He would expect us to. But when somebody has repented, then is the time to forgive. And that's when Joseph then proclaims the forgiveness. And forgiveness is not, forgiveness is not feeling love for somebody. I'm always obligated to love. When somebody wrongs me, when somebody sins against me, when somebody injures me, I'm still obligated to love them, but I'm not obligated to forgive them until there's repentance. But when that repentance is demonstrated then the obligation, the responsibility is on me to love. And the question is, at that point, why is it still hard? I can understand why it would be hard if I'm being told to forgive someone that I'm not really obligated or responsible to forgive and whom it might be harmful to me if I did extend that forgiveness to them. It might be harmful for them. But once they've repented, once they've shown a change, is forgiveness still hard for me? And I ask myself, well, why is it not hard for Joseph at this point? I mean, this guy has been pretty terribly wrong. Now, you know, he's got some goodies now. He's got the bennies, you know. But still, there's all that animosity and all that hatred of the past. 
And, and none of that stands in his way. He just pours it out to them. And I, I can only see two explanations for that. I think they go hand in hand. One I've already mentioned is that he just he loves them. And he's always wanted to do this for them. He's always wanted to forgive them. That's his heart. He loves them. But the other reason I think it's so excuse me. The other reason I think it's so easy, if you will, for him to forgive his brothers is because he sees in everything that happens the higher purposes of God. He understands that though his brothers hurt him, meant to hurt him, meant to do him evil, that in reality they were unsuccessful. Because Joseph recognizes the truth about God that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. As Paul says in Romans 8, and then a few verses later, he says, and what can separate us from the love of God? Tribulation or distress or famine or persecution or nakedness or peril or sword? And he goes on, you know, none of these things can separate us from the love of God. And the reality in Joseph's life is because he was loved of God and because he was a child of God and because he loved God, there was nothing that could separate him from the love of God and therefore everything that happened in his life ultimately would happen to the good. And because of that, he's free to forgive his brothers because he recognizes that even in everything his brothers have been working, God has been working something greater and something good. Rick, uh, that I think is the key to why it was easy. If we can say it this way, it didn't matter what his brothers did. Yes. He had a perspective. He had, and for me, that's what happens. When it's hard, I don't have God's perspective. I haven't relinquished the control. Yeah. But once I do that, then it's easy. Yeah. And I think he had come to that conclusion and then realized it. And if uh, they had not repented, his attitude still would have been the same. Yes. He could have. He would. It would have been easy anyway. Yes. yes. And now that they've done their part, it's even better. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the point. And so if I am, if I owe someone forgiveness and I'm finding it hard to extend to them, it's probably not a problem with them. It's probably a problem with me and my perspective and that I really do not believe Romans chapter 8. That all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. And go ahead. In a lot of cases, we're not at a point where we can see that it will be for the good that we may not see that. Yeah, and as I was thinking about that, yeah, as I was thinking about that yesterday, I was thinking, I cannot guarantee that five years or ten years or fifteen years before this, Joseph could have done this, because I don't know that for sure. You know, I don't know if Joseph clearly, consistently, faithfully through all those years was absolutely confident that he was going to see those dreams fulfilled. It seems to me that he did, but I don't know that for sure. So, so it may take some time for us to get to the point where we can come to grips with Romans chapter 8 in our lives. But when we do, then forgiveness can easily come from us. Not Again, not without cost, not without great personal cost. But still, it, it, there's no resistance, there's no reluctance. There's a willingness and there's a gladness and there's a delight that comes in extending that forgiveness. And that's what, <clears throat> that's what we see in, in Joseph as he, as he speaks to his brothers. And then... And then what does he say to him? The point that Mike was bringing up earlier. 
What does he say to him? Come closer. Come closer. And that's that's really the heart of forgiveness, isn't it? The heart of forgiveness says the things that have separated us, the things that have been a barrier between us are gone. I want to I want to pull you in to my life. I want you to I, I, I want us to fellowship to you. I want us to be close to one another. And so forgiveness breeds closeness. And guilt breeds distance, doesn't it? When there's guilt there, when there's when there's unconfessed, unrepented sin, when we've wronged someone and we've not made it right, there's just a barrier there. No matter how much they want to pull us close, we can't we can't move close, can we? Because we know there's a barrier. We know there's something we've done that's damaged or hindered the relationship. And until we confront that and acknowledge that and confess that and experience their forgiveness, we just can't have that closeness. And there may be, there may be people in your life that, that you want to forgive. You love them. And you want to forgive them. You know, I think about you know, the agony that Joseph has gone through over the last year or so. As his brothers have been right there in front of him. But he can't call them closer. All this stuff going on, you know, the cup and the money in the sack. and all, You know, all this is because there's, there's unconfessed sin. But when that is finally laid bare, when it's clear their hearts are transformed and changed, then Joseph can say, come closer. Then he can break down the barriers. He can let them know who he truly is and call them into his fellowship, which he does at this point. And then he turns to the subject of his father. And he's got some words for dad. And he says, I want you to go up to dad and I want you to say to dad, thus says your son Joseph. You see, he makes it he makes it a, it's like a personal letter he's sending home to dad. It's not just, I want you to go home and tell dad thus and so. He says, I want you to go home and tell dad, I say this to you, dad. I cannot imagine what that was like to Jacob. To hear a message from his son Joseph. This son that for all these years is lost, presumed dead, and now he hears a message from him. And the message is come here and don't delay. And it strikes me, he's not had a word. He's not sent one word to his father over all these years. But when, when finally he's free to send that message, he's in a hurry. He's in a hurry now. And... And we might ask ourselves, well, Joseph, why didn't you at least send word back to your dad that you were still alive? But, but it's obvious for some reason Joseph didn't feel he could do that. Now, I don't know all the reasons, but I assume part of it was he has no idea what's going on back home. He doesn't know what his brothers have told his dad. You know, it's, there's, there's, you know, so 
I'm assuming that that's part of it. I don't know why he why he delayed. But when the delay was over, then he was in a hurry. I don't know why Christ delays. When I look around and I see all the wickedness and I see all the suffering and everything that's going on in the world, you know, sometimes I, I wonder why. You know, of course, I know he says, you know, he's trying to save as many as possible. But, but I go, why? But I do know this much. That when, whatever the reason is why he has delayed this long, whatever the reason is, when that reason is satisfied, he's going to be in a hurry. And it's going to all happen so fast, it's going to make our heads spin. So he sends this word back to his father. And, uh, and, and, he, and he tells his brothers, listen, you've you, you, you got to go back and you've got to tell him about all the splendor you've seen, all my splendor you've seen here in Egypt. And it's like Joseph is saying, go back to dad and say, hey, dad, ain't I done good? <laughs> you know, it's just an instinctive thing in a kid, isn't it? I just want, just want Dad to know we did well. Joseph, you know, he, he knows how his father felt about him. He knows about how his father wanted him to prosper and wanted him to do well. And so he, he, he just says, you make sure Dad knows I'm doing okay. But he tells him to tell, some, tell him something else. He says, you tell him, you tell Dad. This is my word to Dad. God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Now, I'm sure that Jacob was thrilled to hear that Joseph was Lord over all Egypt. But I think he was far more thrilled to hear that Joseph knew that it was God who did it. I'm reminded of the Apostle John's words there in 3 John when he says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And what must it have been like for Jacob to hear when, you know, when the brothers come back and they tell him Joseph's alive and he's in Egypt and he's the ruler of all. And what, what are you thinking as a father? You're thinking, oh, here he's been gone. He's gone through all this horrible stuff. He's been a slave, and now he's totally immersed in Egyptian culture. He speaks Egyptian. He's married to an Egyptian wife. He's he hobnobs with the most powerful and most influential people in Egypt. He's an advisor to Pharaoh, along with all these other pagan advisors to Pharaoh. And what is you know, what, if you were a father, what would you be thinking? How could my son? Survive spiritually in that environment? Did he survive spiritually in that environment? And Joseph wants Jacob to know, Dad, I'm still with God. He's still my God. And I'm not here because I was clever or intelligent or crafty, or manipulative. I'm not even here because I'm gifted. I'm here because your God and my God put me here. How much must Jacob have been encouraged to hear that? Well... Then he turns to his brothers and he says, you see, it's my mouth speaking to you. You see it. Benjamin sees it. You know, it's my mouth. He's basically saying, basically he's saying, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, it's me. It's really me. I'm speaking to you in Hebrew. I'm not speaking to you through an interpreter. I know you. I know your language. I am your brother. It really is me. And they needed to know that because it doesn't do any good to hear that somebody else forgives you for something you did to another party. 
You've got to hear it from the person who was wronged. There's some kind of weird thing that goes on in our culture today. Partly, I guess, because of the media and we see so much of things, bad things that people do to other people. And from time to time, you'll hear things like, you know, you, 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 you read about some famous person, some politician or some uh, entertainment star, somebody who's terribly wrong, somebody else, and, you know, maybe some football hero or somebody, and they've done something terribly wrong. And, and they've betrayed a, a partner or, or, or somebody. And, and the weird thing is that sometimes you hear, say, well, we need to forgive that person. Well, excuse me, that's not our job. They didn't wrong us. They wronged the person they wronged. And that's the person who needs to forgive them. And, and, you know, and oftentimes we encounter it on a personal level where we've maybe wronged someone uh, and, 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 and we're bothered by it, but someone comes along beside us and says, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Just forget about it. It's not their business. It's not for them to say who I should forgive and who I shouldn't forgive. Or who I should seek forgiveness from and who I shouldn't seek forgiveness. It's not their business. It's between me and that person. And Joseph wants him to know it's me. I'm forgiving you. And then he falls on Benjamin's neck and he weeps on Benjamin and Benjamin weeps on his neck and and then he kisses his brothers and he weeps on them. Wait a minute. It doesn't say his brothers wept on him. This is an interesting thing about forgiveness here to me. It's not the one who's it's not the ones who are forgiven who are weeping. It's the one who has forgiven who is weeping. Now, we'll find out later in the story that the brothers still have a little baggage they're going to have to work out. Okay, but I'm not going to deal with that today or in this passage because I want to save that for them. Okay, when we get to that part of the story. So his brothers still have a little baggage that needs to be worked out. Okay, but, but it just strikes me that it's Joseph that's weeping here, not his brothers. I don't know if they were, don't say they were weeping. But what does strike me here, in addition to that, is what do his brothers do? They talk to him. Seems like a normal thing to do, right? Why not? They wouldn't talk to him before. In chapter 37, says they could not speak a kind word to him. It's what forgiveness does, folks. It calls people close and makes it so we can talk. And if if in our lives there are people God is calling us to forgive, we should step up and do that. And just in closing now, I just want to I just want to call your attention to this. These, these guys, there was nothing they hated the thought of more than having to bow down to Joseph. They were willing to kill him just to make sure they would never bow down to him. But when the time came that submission becomes not a burdensome, horrible, ugly thing, but it becomes a sweet and beautiful thing. Why? Because of the grace and the forgiveness of Joseph. And uh, uh, one commentator, uh, Matthew's uh, writing in the... uh, Expository Bible Commentary says this. He says, What the dreams did not make known 
was that grace and forgiveness, not submission enforced by power, achieve the benevolent outcome of the ruler over his subjects. What the dreams did not make known was that grace and forgiveness, not submission enforced by power, achieved the benevolent outcome of the ruler over his subjects. You see, the dreams didn't make that clear to them. And so they assumed the worst. They assumed Joseph was going to be this overlord over them. (laughs) But that wasn't at all what God had in mind. And I just, as I thought about that, as I think about that, I just think, How little does the world understand how sweet it is to submit to Christ? They fight against it. They resist it. They hate it. They don't want it. They're afraid of it because they just, you know, submission to this, you know, bully, you know, they just, and they have no sense of how sweet it is. But it's not just the world. Sometimes we fall that trap ourselves, don't we? We fight submission to God. He's calling us to submit to Him and obey Him and yield to Him. And we fight it and we resist it. But when we finally do it, isn't it sweet? Because of His love and because of His grace. Well, we'll go on in the rest of the chapter next week.